Well, good morning from me as well. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And while everybody's kind of moving around, getting uh, stuff put away, and the kids are getting to their classes, let me just say this brief little word about Christmas. Um, I've been reading and, and just kind of doing my own, if you will, journey of, of kind of just my Advent journey, if you will, uh, spending some time really reflecting on the Christmas season. And there's something that I'd like to share with you this morning. You know, in just a few weeks, we're going to be joining with men and women, boys and girls all over the world to look back and celebrate the most amazing thing, the fact that, that God kept the biggest promise of all to send His Son, Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. And even as we prepare to look back to the coming of Jesus, sometimes it may be helpful for us to uh, kind of remember what it must have felt like for those who look forward to his coming. The men and women, the boys and girls of the Old Testament times who were looking back, or sorry, looking forward to Jesus. For years before Jesus came, the prophets throughout the Old Testament were, were teaching the people about the Messiah and and who he would be, and what he would do, and how to recognize it when he came. They said he would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born of a virgin, that he would be a king who would rule and reign according to the lineage of David, and he would usher in an era of unprecedented peace. And so the men and women of Israel, the boys and girls, they waited. They waited with hearts that were full of longing and anticipation, waiting for this coming rescuer. And then on a night that was normal and completely, you know, just un... I'm sorry for this popping. No idea what's happening. Excuse me? Justin, you got me? Read me loud and clear? Awesome. So as I was saying, after these prophets had spoken of the coming of Jesus, on a night that was just totally like any other night there in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. Mary, who was along uh, ways into her pregnancy, had traveled with her fiancé Joseph uh, many miles, actually about 100 miles from Nazareth way up in the north all the way down to Bethlehem near Jerusalem. And when they got there, there wasn't any room for them to, to take up residence. So they took the only spot that was available. They found some shelter there in a stable. And when her time had come, Mary gave birth to a son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, and she gave him a name. Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. And so, again, on a night normal and completely un, you know, just ordinary, a son was given, a child was born. And that, that came, that event came 400 years after the prophets stopped talking about him. For 400 years, the voice of God had been silent. And then that night he came. 
And with that newborn's first cry, it was a cry of deliverance. He came in the ancient of days, stepped into time, and wrapped himself in the flesh of a little bitty baby. He came full of love, compassion, and power. And he came to rescue people who were held in bondage and darkness and carry them into his kingdom of everlasting light. He came just as he said he would. The thing that's been kind of resonating in my heart over the last few days is that I know that there's many people in this room who are waiting. Waiting for maybe a report to come from the doctor. Waiting for a phone call from a loved one. Waiting for God to provide because, I mean, I'm not sure how much longer I can hold on. And in what may be the complete understatement of the year, let me just say that waiting is hard. It's painful and it's vulnerable. And yet as we wait here today, let's remember what it must have felt like for those people who look forward to Jesus coming. They waited for a long time and then he came. And so among the many wonderful things that Christmas brings to us each year, maybe we could add this one to the list, that as we wait, may our hearts be refreshed, may they be encouraged, may they be revitalized by faith, remembering that God had been faithful to his biggest promise of all, and that he sent his son Jesus. Christmas is awesome. It's just awesome. Well, if you've got a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 42 to 47. So if you've got a Bible, got a device, whatever, meet me there in Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Again, as we celebrate Christmas this year, we remember that as Jesus was born, after he was born, he grew up. He grew up to be a young man, and as he began his ministry, he began to teach about and to demonstrate the truth of God and the glory of God. And he did many wonderful things on his way to the cross where he would bear the penalty for our sin. As Jesus was going about performing miracles and teaching many wonderful things, he made many great announcements. And one announcement in particular involves all of us here this morning. Jesus announced that he would build his church. He announced he would build a gathering. He would gather men and women, boys and girls, who may be different in every other way, different in their language, different in their culture, different where they're from. But the one essential thing they would hold in common is that they shared belief in, trust in Jesus for salvation. And so this morning, as we uh, take another step in this series of the book of Acts, we're going to see the beginning of what Jesus did to build the church. We're going to see specifically here in Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, the, the first example, if you will, of a New Testament church. And as we're going to see, it wasn't a perfect church, but it was a great church. 
a great church that has perhaps for us some things to learn and consider as we seek to be the church and, and live out our lives as men and women of the church here in Katy, Texas some 2,000 years later, okay? Now, I'm just speculating a bit here, but it certainly seems like our culture around us has their own ideas of what church is supposed to be like, right? Specifically, they may have their own ideas of what a great church is supposed to be. You know, here in the suburbs of West Houston, where there's new houses and new buildings and new businesses going up all the time, it seems like they're, they're bigger, they're better, they're just more grandiose. It seems like our culture just has this idea of what it means to be a great church. Like that may kind of creep into the picture. First of all, to be a great church, it has to be big. The bigger, the better. Uh, to be a great church, it has to have lots and lots of programs that are perfectly suited to meet our needs, right? It has to have to be a great church, an amazing program for my kids. It has to have a, a group that's just right for me and then something that's just plain awesome for my spouse. Another thing that seems like our culture may feel like to have a great church is that it, the, the pastor needs to be funny and cool, maybe wear some skinny jeans every now and then. He, he needs to... Uh, leave his congregation with a, a really good pick-me-up message that'll just kind of get you through to the other uh, side of the week, right? Now, here's the truth. There's nothing wrong with being a big church. Nothing wrong with having lots of programs. Maybe there'd be something wrong with me wearing skinny jeans, but there's nothing wrong with those sorts of things. In fact, there's a lot of good things about being a place where people enjoy themselves, and there's lots of good stuff happening but in and of themselves, are those the things that make a church great? You've got your Bible open to Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. Let me just share, if you will, the big idea of what I think this text is all about, at least the way I'm reading it. I think what this text is telling us is that a great church is marked by continual devotion to the Lord, to his people, into his work in the world. For a church to be great, it's marked by continual devotion to the Lord, to his people, and to his work in the world. Let's take a look at this text and see if we can kind of unpack that together. In fact, let me just back up one verse and we'll get a running start in verse 41. It says, So then, those who had received this, his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What we're seeing there is the results of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and does his powerful work. Okay, earlier in this chapter, about at the beginning, we read how the Holy Spirit came powerfully and gave men and women the ability to speak the message of the gospel in a language that was not their own so that many people there in Jerusalem could hear and understand it. Last week, Mitch talked us through the middle part of chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came powerfully and used Peter to explain what had happened when these people started speaking in other tongues. And, and Peter also explained powerfully that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And now here in verse 41, we see that the Holy Spirit is continuing his powerful work. He penetrated the hearts and minds of a huge group of people 
and enabled them to understand and to receive the message of the gospel. Jesus is indeed building his church. And see what happens as the Lord saved them and brought them together. Look what happens next. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wow, what a great church. I mean, certainly this church wasn't perfect. I mean, there is no perfect church as long as there's people involved. But this was a great church. I think if any one of us could strap ourselves into a time machine and go back there to that, that day there in Jerusalem when this church gathered, uh, we would say, come back and be able to say, among other things, man, that was a great church. And we wouldn't say that because it has a bunch of programs or because everybody just, you know, had a great time together. We would say that because when we were part of that church, we saw that they were devoted to the Lord. They were devoted to one another. And they were devoted to God's work in the world. I want to see how those things were demonstrated here in this text. Let's take a look. Again, the first priority, it seems, that they had was this continual devotion to the Lord. The risen Lord Jesus was central to everything that they did and said. And let's see how they showed this. The first is they were devoted to the teaching of God's word. Here in verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now remember what happened. Uh, the Holy Spirit worked powerfully and bang, 3,000 brand new believers came through the front doors of this church. That's awesome. These men and women had, had, had experienced salvation, and they were excited, but they needed to be taught. They needed to be grounded in the truths of God. They needed to be taught the truth of God's word. And so the apostles did just that. And in my mind, I think it looked maybe a little bit like this picture up on the screen. Men and women who were seated at the apostles' feet, and they were hungry to learn. They persevered in it day by day. There's no way to know for sure what the apostles were teaching. I mean, wouldn't you, have, wouldn't you love to go back and be part of those days? But in my mind, I think maybe they did with the people what Jesus had recently done with them. That they, with the people, went back to the Old Testament and starting with Moses and with all the prophets, they explained the truth in all the scriptures concerning Jesus. For a church to be great, it must be devoted to the word of God because that's where God has chosen to reveal himself to his people. Another way they showed that they were devoted to the Lord was they had a devotion to corporate worship. 
verse 42 tells us not only were they continually devoting themselves to the teaching, but also to the breaking of bread. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper or communion, as we might call it. Just like it was for us this morning when, when those men and women took the bread and they took the cup, it reminded them of the greatest truth of all, that God's Son loved them and gave himself for them to make possible them to be forgiven of sins and reconciled back to the Father. It led them to examine their hearts and repent of sin. They also show that devotion to corporate worship and how they prayed. I like how the text says that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Whenever and wherever this church met, whether it was formal or informal, whether it was in a large group at the temple or a smaller gathering from house to house, prayer was a central component of what they did in their time together. And I think that's a good truth for us, whether we're all in here together as one big family or when we're broken up into smaller groups or even in our own families. Prayer can be a central focus of what we do as followers of Christ. Let me say this, because some people can get kind of intimidated, kind of freaked out by the whole idea of prayer. In order to have a good prayer life, you don't have to, you know, have a bunch of big words or speak in churchy language. That's not what prayer is all about. Prayer is simply a child going to his or her father who loves them, and for that child to express his or her love to the father. And maybe talk to him about some things that they're... Um, needing or some things that they're facing and seeking his help, his wisdom, his encouragement. Lastly, this should be no surprise, but as they devoted themselves to the Lord, as they devoted them, themselves to his teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, it talks about how they were overflowing with praise and joy. Verse 46 shows us that as they went from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. The very next verse talks about how they were just continually giving praise to God. Now, here's the thing. That praise to God was not coming about because everything in their lives was just awesome and everything was just going perfect. It wasn't just that their circumstances were so wonderful that gave rise to this always there, never-ending sense of praise Enjoy. We know that already, even at this early stage, there were people who were critical of them and their devotion to Jesus, people that were opposed to them for their faith. And so it wasn't that their circumstances were just perfect that gave rise to them praising or giving glory to God. And that's, that's a good lesson for us because sometimes our circumstances aren't perfect, right? Some things don't always go the way we might want them to go. And so how can we follow this example and have that same kind of overflowing, never-ending, never-running-out sense of praise and joy? I think what they did in being continually devoted themselves to the Lord gives us a clue of where this sense of ongoing praise and joy comes from. You see, they weren't focusing, they weren't putting their eyes on their circumstances. Instead, they were putting their eyes and their hearts on God and his presence in their lives, his truth, 
his faithfulness. I like how the Apostle Paul later, uh, he wrote a letter to the church of Colossae. And it says in chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Colossians, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I was just talking to one of my daughters yesterday about how, you know what, it's a daily challenge just to continue to find joy and peace and an opportunity to praise even when things in our lives aren't going the way that we want them to go. How does it happen? We train our hearts, train our minds, train our eyes to keep the focus on the Lord. Okay, so this early church there in Jerusalem, it was a great church. What made them that way perhaps more than any other thing was they had a continuous devotion to the Lord. It was as if the people there put Jesus in the center and everybody else took a step back. But it didn't end there. Another thing that made them a great church is they were continually devoted to the Lord's people. It says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the next thing it says is they were devoted to fellowship. To fellowship. Now, uh, if you've grown up or spent any time at all in church, you know this word fellowship, right? Maybe you grew up in a church that had a fellowship hall. Uh, maybe you think of fellowship as, you know, hanging out with a friend before or after church begins or spending time together in fellowship over a meal at a potluck dinner. Um, that sense of being together with one another is certainly part of what, uh, what Luke is talking about here in Acts 2 when he uses that word fellowship. But what he's talking about is actually something that goes much deeper than just kind of being together with each other. This word fellowship has its roots in the concept of having something significant in common. It's talking about sharing something that's the most important thing to you. Uh, one commentary I read this week, uh, getting ready for this morning's message, talked about this word fellowship, and he used the word partnership. And I like that, partnership. This partnership was built on the foundation of their salvation. Uh, the men and women who made up this early church, they, they had a partnership that was built on the fact that they together were looking to Jesus as Lord and Savior, as different as they may have been in every other walk of life. Maybe they were old or young, maybe they were new in town or had lived there forever, but the one thing they held in common was the most important thing. The basis of that partnership was a common faith in the risen Lord Jesus as Savior. And that's a powerful experience, right? I think we all maybe experience that. You've met somebody who's a complete stranger at the mall or maybe at the airport, and, and soon you discover that they also are a follower of Jesus, and now you're not strangers anymore, right? You're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's an awesome, uh, wonderful meaning of that word partnership. Then in verse 46, uh, Luke continues to describe how they were enjoying this partnership through eating and praying together. But before he gets there, there's another picture he gives of partnership. And I want to maybe park here just for a second and talk about it. In verse 44 to 45, he says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Apparently, uh, these believers there in the church were so bonded in this idea of partnership that if one was in need, the others didn't feel they had the right just to continue on in prosperity while their brother or sister had a need. And so they sold things and used the money to help meet those needs of the poor. Now, I'm not sure how you're feeling as we read these words or as you hear these words, but if I could go out on a limb here, I'm guessing that maybe there's just a little bit of tension when we read those words. Here's what I mean. So in this church, on the one hand, uh, here at Redeemer anyway, there are just a wonderful set of examples of how much love and care this body has for one another. I could go on and on and on giving examples of how you have shown love and care to one another. Look no further than Hurricane Harvey. I have been blown away at how much has been given, how many people have given up their homes, given up a car, given up clothes, given up their time to love and care and meet the needs of one another. That is just awesome. And yet, on the other hand, when we read a, a description of how people were selling their possessions and, and using that money to help others, can we be honest? There's a little bit of, uh, when we read that, right? Can you feel it? I mean, I, I, we feel like sometimes, you know, I've, I've got some stuff and I like my stuff. Should I feel guilty for liking my stuff? Should I sell my stuff? How much of my stuff do I get to keep and how much should I sell? There's a little bit of, ah, a little bit of tension here. Well, I'm not going to say anything to resolve that tension. Actually, I think that tension is actually really good, something that we need to wrestle with. But let me just say a few things here. First of all, um, this idea of the believers there selling their possessions, it was completely voluntary for them to do that. They weren't commanded to do it. Nobody said, this is what you've got to do. They were following the leadership of the Holy Spirit to do that. And so uh, we hear that, and, and we might be tempted to think, okay, whew, I'm off the hook. I don't have to sell my stuff. But be really careful. Be really careful. Because, uh, you know, we have an obligation, if you will, to our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, one of the apostles who was there, there in Acts 2, was a guy named John. And later he wrote a letter that we call the book of 1 John. And in that letter, he says that if we have some material possessions and we see a brother or sister in need, and we're not willing to sell our possessions or help our brother and sister in need, how can we say that the love of God is present in us? And so there's a little bit of a tension here that we as brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, need to live with. I think maybe the, the best thing that I could say here is this, that as we uh, are the church and live in the church, let's stay devoted to the Lord and to one another. And let's be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, following his leadership in our lives, trusting him that if he calls us to maybe sell some of our stuff to help our brother and sister in need, that that's a command that's worth following. Okay? 
So as we've been seeing, again, this church is showing it's a great church. They were continually devoted to the Lord and to his people. And lastly, they were showing that they were a great church by having a devotion to the Lord's work in the world. So far, what we've been seeing, their devotion to the teaching and to the breaking of bread and the prayer, even their care for one another, those were things that were happening inside the church. Now let's take a look and see what's happening outside. And the last half of verse 47 tells us, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, as they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, as they were meeting together in the temple or from house to house, as they were eating together, as they were sharing with one another, they were doing all of those wonderful things, but they also made time to talk to their friends and neighbors about Jesus. The result was there were, this church was growing. There were men and women who weren't part of the church at the beginning who were now coming in the front door. Some of them came in the front door because of the apostles and their teachings, maybe some because of the miracles that they saw. We're going to see in the coming chapters that the apostles would, would teach and do miracles and people would just come, right? It was awesome. Maybe some of the people were coming because of their, the, the, the people in the church were talking to a friend or a neighbor or a loved one about Jesus, or they were seeing, wow, look at these people. They love each other. They, they care for each other. I want to be part of that. But at the end of the day, look what happened. Again, verse 47, it was the Lord who was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. There's an important lesson there for us that we need to be actively talking to our friends and neighbors about Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's God who does the work of bringing men and women to the place of salvation. It's a good lesson, right? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes the idea of talking to a friend or a neighbor about Jesus, that can feel a little bit scary, right? It can be a little bit intimidating. But here's some comforting and powerful good news. That when you or I are talking to a friend or a family member about Jesus, the Lord is with us. We're not alone in that. God is doing his work through us at the same time he's doing his work in the person that we're talking to. As we talk to that person with all of our limitations and weaknesses, God, who has no limitations or weaknesses, is doing his work at the very same time. Add all that up together, and the pressure is not on us to save somebody. Our role is to talk to people about Jesus and introduce, to him, introduce people to him, point to him as the source of salvation, the source of life. The pressure is not on us to, to save that person. That's God's work. And if it's his will, he can and he will do it. That's a, it's a good word for us to have is when, so we don't feel like, you know what, it's all up to me. The Lord was adding to them day by day those who were being saved. So what does it take to have a great church? Hopefully this morning we've learned it doesn't matter if you're small or big, if you've got a bunch of programs or not, if the pastor wears skinny jeans, it doesn't matter. What makes for a great church is their continual devotion to the Lord. Remember how they had that devotion to the, the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread? 
to prayer. It was a continual devotion to one another. Uh, They had that deep bond of partnership and a continual devotion to the Lord's work in the world. That's what makes for a great church. Those are the core values, if you will, of a church that's truly great. And yet, can I say that, you know, as I was thinking about this this week and and putting some of these thoughts together, there was something that was just kind of bugging me. It was something that just, I mean, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm forgetting something. I'm leaving something out. And so I thought and I thought, I prayed and I prayed, and finally it hit me. Finally I realized what I was missing. That um, the idea of having a great church isn't about just a list of activities. It's not just like a to-do list, like we might think of it here, like, okay, we've got to have great teaching, okay, check. Need to be sure that we take Lord's Supper regularly. Okay, let's get that on the calendar. We need to be sure that we're caring for one another. Okay, let's be sure we have somebody in charge of that. The danger with that sort of to-do list thinking isn't that we can't do it. The danger is that we can. Sometimes we can just kind of go through the motions and we're doing all the right things, doing all the right activities, but I think really at the core of what makes a church great is not the right activities, it's having the right attitudes. I think behind what Luke is talking about here in chapter 2, behind what they did, the more important thing is why they did it or how they did it. Why were they continuously devoted to the apostles' teaching? Because they needed it. They longed for it. They were thirsty for it. Why were they praising God in the temple day by day and from house to house? Because their hearts were overflowing with praise and with joy. Why were they sharing with their brother and sister? Because they loved them. And they had a deep sense of partnership with one another. And so if I could say this, Redeemer Community Church, we're a church that's almost 20 years old. Did you know that? Next February, we'll be 20 years old. That's awesome. There has been a a long track record of faithfulness to the scriptures. There's been great men and women who have walked through these doors over the last 20 years. I think personally, this is just me speaking, I don't think the danger that we face is getting off track in some of the activities. But maybe the danger that we'll face is losing sight of having the right attitudes the danger we'll face is just sort of going through the motions. We say this all the time. Lord Jesus isn't so much concerned about what we're doing or what we look like or what we're saying on the outside. He's concerned about what's going on in here, in our hearts. And so this morning, as we kind of finish up our time here, I want to do it in sort of a different way. Perhaps some of you may have grown up in a church where you've done this, but I would ask in just a moment, we're all going to stand and we're all together going to hold hands, okay? We're going to hold hands and we're going to recite some things that are up on the screen. And it's an expression of our hearts together. This in and of itself isn't going to accomplish anything other than to remind us and express our hearts to the Lord. You know, Mitch and I were praying this morning that we would walk out of these doors different than when we walked in, that we would be a different sort 
of church. And what we're going to read here and kind of express to the Lord is the substance of what might make us different, okay? And so if you could please stand and grab somebody's hand. I'm actually going to come down and do it with you. So if you could put it up on the screen for us. And let's read these together. Lord Jesus, this is your church, and we are here for you. You are before all things, and in you all things hold together. As you have brought us together to be the body of Christ, we affirm with humility and gladness of heart that you are the head. We're devoted to you. Lord Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a partnership between us that is based on our common confession in you as Savior and Lord. May our partnership together bring great glory to you as we seek to bring great blessing to one another. We're devoted to one another. Lord Jesus, there are men, women, and children all around us. Many of them who live near to us live far from you. Even so, Lord, you love them and look on them with compassion, desiring that they would receive forgiveness and grace. May you build into us those same attitudes of love and use us as messengers of your gospel. We are devoted to your work in the world. And so, Father God, thank you this morning for gathering us together to be your church. We are members one with one another of the church that you have in the entire world, brothers and sisters, men and women that we've never met that we'll soon gather with in your presence to sing your praises forever. Help us to be truly devoted to you. Pray, God, that we would show love and care, concern, compassion, a sense of sacrifice to one another who are in need. May we not um, overlook others. May we not um, underdo this sense of partnership. Help us to fulfill our commitment to each other. And I pray, Father, that we would also be faithful to represent you well, to be ambassadors for Christ among our friends and neighbors, coworkers, people that we sit next to in class. Father, you are at work adding to your church would you use us as part of that process? It's for your glory, for your great name that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Once again.